Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Busy Being Black listeners now have an exclusive discount at my favorite publishing house, Pluto Press, an independent publisher of radical left-wing nonfiction books. Established in 1969, Pluto is one of the oldest radical publishing houses in the UK, but its focus remains making timely interventions and contemporary struggles. You'll find a curated list of my favorite books and your discount code in the show notes. Thanks to funding from the European Cultural Foundation. I'm embarking on a series of conversations exploring queer Black solidarity across Europe during the COVID-19 crisis. As COVID-19 continues to disproportionately impact Black people and communities of color across the globe, these conversations will focus on how marginalized, othered, and vulnerable communities are coming together in solidarity to share their stories, cultures, and acts of protest and resistance. Thank you to the European Cultural Foundation for investing in these stories. Adeola Adarami is a multilingual Afro-Greek and multi-format artist, scholar, activist, and healer who spends a great deal of time amplifying the voices of and fighting for marginalized women. She is the editor-in-chief of Distinguished Diva, a community of black women storytellers, and she is currently working on raising awareness among the general public on issues such as human trafficking, gender equality, women's health, and equal representation for black women in media. We discuss her research on violence against women, her key learnings during her John Lewis Fellowship in Atlanta, and the moment she became black. Adiola is now based in Brussels, and she pushes back against the narrative of Europe as a post-racial project. She suggests that Europe does its black citizens a disservice by pointing to problems abroad it has yet to address at home, as well as her insights about fighting for and defending the Afro-Greek identity and the ways conversations about citizenship and representation differ in England and in Greece. She also calls us to ancestral healing and to realize that our softness is our birthright. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Adiola Adarami. Adeola, thank you so much for making time for me and, and making time for Busy Being Black. I'm really honored to and humbled to have this conversation with you. Uh, it's my pleasure and I say honor also to share the space with you and have this conversation with you. Um, we're having this conversation um, at the end of a summer that has been for all of us tough, rugged, um, uncertain, frustrating. There have been police protests, political nefariousness, death, um, you know, the proliferation of, of, of images of Black people dying. And so I want to start with the question, how's your heart? I love this question. Thank you for asking. Today, she's okay. She, she's fine. Uh, uh, she's uh, oh wow i'm thinking for my heart as she anyway my heart right now she's very much healing uh when all of this started there was quite a lot going on also in my personal life but also a lot as i think most black people who work in white predominantly white spaces also a lot in terms of what you're experiencing and how the world is reacting and my heart was tired and just like wanted to give up and i think I, I decided that I am necessary for my community and necessary for myself. So I took myself out of the situation that makes me felt tired and went home to Greece to just eat seafood and be at the beach every day and get tan. And I am tired. I'm happy. My heart is like, yes, we can do this. And I gifted myself, not me, my ancestors gifted myself, myself and my heart a gift to go to West Africa for the rest of the year. So my heart is happy, excited, hopeful, joyful, and ready to go home. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And your fam you're Afro-Greek and your family's from Nigeria originally. So my parents are originally from Nigeria, naturalized Greek. So my parents are Greek Nigerians at the same time in terms of nationality. But yes, I am of Nigerian heritage and I'm also Nigerian Greek. Yeah. So is, and is that kind of 
is that identity interchangeable? It's like, you know, my dad's African-American, but he identifies as black, not even black American. I mean, what, what are those kind of designations within, you know, the Afro-Greek community? Uh, it's really, I think it's a very recent term that we coined ourselves after 2000. I think the first time we used this word was 2015, 16. Uh, we still don't know especially who used it, but it's like a group of friends, we start writing it down in papers. And I think that it's a way to identify because most of us know our parents' uh, African heritage, like most of us, our parents are African migrants. So when we say Afro-Greek, it's because we want it to an identity that kind of is able to connect to our Africanness. Because like I grew up being Greek and being Nigerian and also Greek because at home we had Greek meals, we had Nigerian meals and my school, everybody's Greek and I speak Greek I speak, at home. I speak Greek and Yoruba to my parents and English. So it's a bit of because of the multiplicities of our identities and how fluid they are we wanted an identity that captured them all together and we guess i guess we couldn't use the word black only because there is like a, a person of afro greeks who are not african who are not black for example because black identity is mostly sub-saharan africans right so it's a it's like a way to kind of coin a term that encapsulates our identity but also doesn't take away our africanness but also give us the the identity that we really needed to fight for like the greek identity it was something we fought for so it was a way to say we fought for this and we're gonna keep it and it, it pissed a lot of greek people off like the who think greece is homogeneously white nation and it's not but i love that <laughs> I was speaking to my friend earlier today in, in preparation for this conversation, and one of the things that came up, um, he asked me, and so I'm asking you, is do you find yourself, because I mean, you work across Europe, and do you find yourself as, you know, an Afro-Greek, Nigerian Greek, like if you, do you say you're ever Greek, like I think you're living in Brussels at the minute, right? Do people challenge your, your Greek identity? Yeah. Even, and it's interesting, it could either be even among, among the black community, because in Europe right now, I consider myself a black person and in the world, especially after my experience in the US, I am a black person. And when I say I'm Greek and they're just like, what does that mean? And when it comes from Greek people, it's a way to cling to this narrative that Greece is homogeneously white. And there is uh, there's something that one of our former politicians used to say that you cannot be Greek, you're born Greek, you have to have the blood of Greek. And I'm like, that doesn't exist. The current Greek nation is not connected to the Greek nation that you build the European identity on. The Asian Greeks, dead, gone, not part of the current uh, modern Greek nation. So you can't really tell me who is Greek and who isn't because every Greek person who is my friend, my godmother, they all come from somewhere. So everybody in Greece came from somewhere. So that is a way to like, when they challenge me, it's about that. And I think I say that I'm Greek to Greek people mostly abroad. When I meet Greek people abroad, I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Greek too. And it became a conversation either they're going to be like friendly and like, oh, wow, where in Greece do you grew up to, uh, grew up from, or they're going to be like, no, you cannot be Greek. And I'm just like, well, I am Greek. <laughs> Within black people, it's a bit more of like, uh, f wow, I didn't know black Greeks exist. That's exactly what he said. And I said, I can imagine that black people would be more, oh, cool, versus maybe white people or Greek people who'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so why European? It's always like, it doesn't make any sense. Are you adopted? That's an, a common question. Like, were you adopted? I'm just like, no, I wasn't adopted. The white savior didn't come to me. My parents are Nigerians. Like, I eat Nigerian meal at home. And with black people, it's just like, oh, wow, when can I come to Greece with you? Can you take me to Mykonos? Which is amazing. <laughs> And so you spent some time in my home city, Atlanta, um, because you were a John Lewis fellow. Um, talk to me about that experience. And, and I'm particularly keen. I mean, I, I'd love to know how that came about, but I'm also really keen to understand. You said earlier that um, you spent some time in the U.S. and therefore became Black. So I, I'd love for you to expand on that as well. So I'm going to be, it's a very stereotypical Nigerian thing to say about, I, I, I know I was African. I could look into the mirror. I know I was black, uh, but 
I grew up uh, partially across West Africa. So I grew up in Yamea and traveled a lot across the West African coast as a child and went to a school where I was always a, a majority, if you can say so. So I've never identified as a black person. I'm just a Yoruba, Nigerian person. And when I moved to Europe in Greece, I was just uh nigerian in greece you know what i mean like it, it, the the black identity was never something i had to say out loud even though there is an awareness of like oh africans and people of african descent we're black and we share a heritage but i've never said it until at least i start going to the uk to study and i i kind of became okay with people calling me a black person because i used to be when i was a teenager i was like i am not black i am brown african from west africa and people just like what does that mean and i remember having this conversation as a teenager bringing a black object and be like do you see this am i as dark as this but Grow, uh, realizing as a adult, young adult in university, what black means is more about the identity politically has allowed me to embrace it, but never really claim it until actually I was thrown to the US. So I was in Atlanta as a John Lewis fellow. May he rest in peace now. Uh, I went as a fellow with a humanity in action to basically learn about the civil rights movements in the 60s, 50s and 40s. And basically, it's a fellowship that teaches us about the civil rights movement and the role of John Lewis and also all the other women and people that were part of the role. And also learning from John Lewis himself, how he is, he was the nexus of American moral compass at the time when he was alive. So learning from him was a huge pleasure and uh, uh, I, I'm very grateful that I got to say thank you to him face to face that I get to eat chicken with him face to face at his favorite <laughs> place in Atlanta but I think that it was also a way for me to connect to the ancestral roots of African Americans that have done the work that continue to do the work and that allows me also to see the parallel because I was raised as a very strong Pan-African in a Pan-African house but my Pan-Africanism always think about the continent like I, I always like pan-africanism is my people the liberation of my continent the liberation of my people whereas going to the u.s made me see that my people are over the seas my people are everywhere my people are in the caribbeans and my people in the americas and the work that they do is closely connected and interdependent as a black person and that's where the black became very paramount and i always like i'm a black queer woman and people like wow okay so not nigerian anymore (laughs) (laughs) so like the nation state's gone (laughs) i love that though right that that it it then becomes something a, a blackness becomes a political thing right i mean i guess as it always has been really but and that it is interchangeable with, or rather you can add it to um, these other identities that you hold simultaneously, right? It's something that's so unique to black and African and black African people, I think, is that the labels, the identity changes and shifts with borders, right? It becomes something else altogether, but perhaps all carries with us a unified history. Yeah, and I think also being African and being raised in a Yoruba house, I was always aware of the nation state not having anything to do with my identity in a very like utopian way of like, I am Yoruba, but of course my passport says Nigeria, but I am Yoruba, but actually claim that helped me claim my blackness as a political identity of like we are a unified fund i am a black person in a world that moves through whiteness and continue to thrive and will continue to thrive in this world you said in um you wrote a reflective essay um as a john lewis fellow about, about the program and you wrote I struggle with the heavenly portrayal of Europe as a racial paradise, even now by most of the African-Americans I interacted with in this fellowship. My experience of Europe is not of a post-racial society, but of a society that denies the existence of race as a concept and one who loves to write off its contribution in the global imperialism that enslaved, pillaged, and looted all people of African descent. I was like, tell them. This happened after, so Dr. Rosalind Pope is the black, beautiful woman that wrote the Human Rights Convention for the UN, uh, talking about the rights of African-American and becoming a universal declaration in the 50, uh, in the 20s, in the 40s, when she was at Spelman. And she was part of our fellowship. So she would sit with me and talk about her experience of Paris in the 40s. And 
for me, it was interesting because I love talking to our elders. My grandfather used to talk to me about his experience of being a vet for the British Army and what that looks like coming to the UK and being in Britain and just sharing space in Europe and what Europe looked like for him and my most of my family being coming to Europe since then and what Europe was to them. And now I sit down next to a brilliant woman who has written this brilliant document talking about her experience of France as a racial escape from America. But she was talking about uh, Jim Crow America and I was so shocked because when I read James Baldwin talking about Paris I was like what Paris were they living in because for me my version of Paris that my grandfather told me about my version of Paris that I read in European books in history books that exist in Europe as an Afropean is one of violence towards black people like Paris was not a racial paradise in Belgium that I currently reside there is a human zoo with African until 1958 that is very recent that was 60 years mm. ago that was in like 700 years ago so I'm thinking about when Amer when she was telling me and I actually asked her it's really difficult for me to challenge my elders because in Yoruba they say respect your elders but I was like I'm so sorry I want to ask you when you went to Paris did you meet other black people were you living with other black Parisian and she said to me, no, because I went as an American. And I was like, this is the issue. Because when, my, when our African-American cousin come to Europe, they get treated on their American passport. And that's when nation state comes forward, right? Like, yes, in America, you live in segregated America and brutal America, violent America. But the moment you step to the borders of Europe, your treatment as a black person changed because you become American here. And if you go to the Parisian Bronlier, if that was where uh, James Baldwin and Dr. Rosalind Pope were living, they wouldn't have these amazing stories of Paris to tell. So it's really interesting because even till today, African-Americans think about Europe and talk about Europe as a racial post-colonial society. I'm like, no, it's not. You guys need to talk to us because there is no such thing. Like, I went to the African Museum when I first moved to Brussels because I wanted to see what was going on. And I talked to one of the, uh, the tours. She was telling me that in the 50s, they still have a human zoo. And human zoo existed in Britain, existed here, existed in Germany, in Castle, existed in Ireland, existed in all European nation states. So the idea that Africans were seen as objects to be put in museum and looked at and thrown bananas at, and the ones who died at those monuments were not not properly buried their families never got them back the, the, the stains exist in Europe that it's being buried and it's being rewritten as this nice place like everybody come to Sicily for holiday but who built Sicily and my grandfather always told me when you walk to any European city think about the ancestors think about the Africans who built that place think about the African resources that make that place exist so who built this beautiful Parisian lifestyle that you are able to come into and I think that that's when I realized we need to have more dialogue and discussion between us as people of African descent of what actually was happening, what was history. Like Alice Walker says, as a black woman, I don't look for history for facts, I look for clues. I go to the museum, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna see how many black people they had at that century and what their representation was. And that's when you know that Europe was never and has never been a post-racial society. It is always a violent place for black people. It has decided to erase its own memory and have a selective amnesia of its own colonial past, of its own imperialism, and continues to do that today. You know, I wrote this question for much later, but since we're here, <laughs> um, five values form the basis of the EU and are laid out in the Lisbon Treaty and the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. They are human dignity, freedom, equality, rule of law, and democracy. And as you said, right, that, that this these aren't values that Black people in Europe, Black Africans or otherwise, are necessarily able to enjoy or bestowed upon them. And so I think this is perhaps a big and unanswerable question, particularly for so early on in our conversation, but do you think the European Union as a political and organizing body can live up to the values it says are at its core? I have, I, 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 I'm hopeful. I believe that it's possible, but every time I look, I used to work in EU institution. Every time I look within the dialogue happening, it's always pointing fingers to the United States of America. And I think that you cannot heal and you cannot 
create a place that can uphold those values of dignity and human rights and 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 respect people if you don't look within your home like what is happening currently in my home country of greece is a big example of that i was on holiday enjoying but i i knew what was going on in my country i knew that people were being put back on boats and being used as as like as a chess point to play against EU and Turkey. So the EU-Turkey agreement deal on refugees and migrants, that agreement is a great example of how people don't have human dignity within EU borders. We don't even have to go far away. The fact that in Greece there are migrant workers who are mostly African or even mostly black people who are working in terrible state for us to get our vegetables to the EU, for us to get all these nice uh, strawberries and vegetables that we have. Like there was a court case in the uh, in uh, Strasbourg a few years ago about what happened in a village where they went fed. What was going on was purely slavery because they didn't have money. They weren't getting paid. There were farmers there who were working and they were mostly African. They were mostly black people. They're mostly people who come from the global south. So does Europe respect its workers? Do people actually get paid? In Italy, people, a lot of African migrants who happen to cross the Mediterranean when they are in Italy, they had to work in farms like this. Like, But if you think further about what is the production line, do those people have dignity? Are their human rights being respected? And what are the, this year, so the European Commission had this tagline about their new commission. It was protecting European way of life. And my question was, what European way of life? I'm a communication person. And when the visuals came out, it was about borders. It was about security. But you don't understand that there are Europeans who don't look white. Their human dignity is not being respected. If people who have, quote unquote, the nationalities of the EU, in Europe, don't get their human right respected, people who I call Afropean. What do you think about people who are just incoming? Mm. So will the EU be able to respect all its values that it's pride itself in and tell that it's the leader of the world in those values? It wouldn't if it doesn't look home. You can have a great external communication and you can look great outside and have amazing branding, but does the branding does the work internally? You know, I'm thinking of James Baldwin in that um, that video that's been circulating recently. Um, where is the evidence? I don't know what you what white Americans think of me, but I can only tell by the state of their institutions. I only know that there's a white church and there's a black church. There's a white this and a black that. And I think that that and so perhaps those are some of the parallels that are drawn between and they're not maybe often spoken about um, as often, but perhaps those are some of the parallels that are drawn between the kind of black American experience and the Afropean experience is that there is very much this de facto segregation, right? There is very, ma very much this affront to human dignity, to freedom, to democracy. And yet, you know, perhaps we're the ones, whether in the U.S. or across Europe, who are upholding those values ourselves, right? And holding the state or, you know, the political body to, to account. That's the only way for us to survive and thrive in this society is that if those values exist, they need to extend to everyone. They need to work for everyone. If you say human dignity and democracy, for example, if you're not a national of a country, you can't vote in the election. So what about the people who can't vote at all, who are mostly people who enter the country as economic migrants who cannot vote? Or when we talk about citizenship, six years ago in Greece, if you're born and raised in Greece or in Italy, till today, you do not have automatic citizenship. And even if you go to university, I went to university in Greece, I went to school in Greece, there are people like me who still don't have Greek citizenship. Because you can naturalize to become Greek, but for you to do that, you need a lot of money. The ways they make it very impossible for you not to do that. And if you think about people who are economic migrants, like my parents and their generation and their friends in both Greece and Italy, specifically those Mediterranean countries, because that's what I know mostly about, they don't have the means. There's no access to them being allowed political education, being allowed to be political participation, being allowed to be citizens. And you cannot have a democracy that represents the 40%. If your democracy does not represent the 100% of your citizen, that is not democracy. That has a different name. I don't need to say it. We are all smart and we're all adults. <laughs> um I think it might be helpful to talk about, and I also want to say and preface this by saying that I'm always really loath to have people 
to ask people to tell me stories about what they've been through that are negative, right? Because Black people are so often called to recant stories like, well, tell me about a time of racism or sexism, blah, blah, blah. So this isn't that question. But I do think it's important for listeners and myself to understand more about what, what is a specific experience if you can if you can whittle them down. Um, what, what marks the Afro-Greek experience? Does that make sense? It, it does. Or how would you describe, maybe a better question is, how would you describe the Afro-Greek experience from your lens? What, what are the particular hurdles there? It's being visible and invisible. I, I did an exhibition last year that was called Visibly Invisible. You're visible because you're black and it's there and it's in the face and people see it, but you're invisible because the system that you're born into doesn't recognize you as a citizen. And that means a lot of things. That means that you don't have access to the job market. That means that you might be deported from the country that you were born in and the country you grew up in and the place that you are. But that also means you're stuck in that country because lack of being undocumented or having a nationality that is actually not yours because it's your parents' nationality means that you can't travel to study. You can't have the same access with your friend. I have a friend who went on vacation with their friend, the police stopped them and they told him that he's getting deported. He has never been to Nigeria. He doesn't know where Nigeria is, has never stepped foot on Nigerian soil and he was about to be deported to Nigeria. I mean, eight, uh, five years ago, that changed. There is a law that allows people to be naturalized and also to claim their citizenship. But the thing is, laws can change, but what about implementation? Do you change the societal notion of being Greek? When I work around Greece, when I go on vacation, I am still talked to in English as if I'm American. Like, oh, you're from New York. I'm like, no, I'm not. And right now there are certain professions that you can't have access to because you have either double nationality or your heritage is not apparently clearly Greek because that means you have to be white Greek. White Greek to go to the military. Not that I actually support all of this anyway. Like this is a job that I don't care about. But for example, a lawyer. But I mean, these things, you know, police, military, these are emblematic of citizenship, right? These are things that I, that I acknowledge that you are, part, like just being able to have access to any job you want to do in your life. That's it. Like a friend of mine that I know what studied medicine, finished her medical stuff and was supposed to do her specialization and all of the hospitals didn't allow her to come in. I mean, this was five years ago, but that's not far away. They were like, oh, we don't want a black doctor. What does that mean? I mean, she had to fight and fight and fight. And the fact that I think the common thread with Afro-Greek is our story. We have to fight. It's always fighting about the common, the things that are so basic, like having to fight to get a job, having to fight to be okay to study, having to fight to to go into any space that is your space. And I think that when I, when I used to live in the UK, I talked to a lot of people who are black British that we are not having the same conversation. Right. Uh, yeah. That's, I was, I was going to bring that up that what you said in this pre-chat that there was a, there was a difference between the conversation that's being happening, the happening among black British people and among Afro Greeks. And it's about representation for black British people and about it's about, so black British people want well representation of themselves in every sector of society. I want society to accept me first. Like I want Greek society to realize that I'm Greek period and allow me to then enter those space. So I might seek for representation too. allow me to be an elected official. I could get elected, but five years ago, I might not be able to. So if I am, for example, let's say I become the first black Afro-Greek person who is a, a prime minister, a minister, what, what then people generation after me or generation, my generation could be like, we want more black MEPs. We want more black MPs. We want more black Greek uh, public officers. We want black people in civil servants. It's very simple things. It's like, because most of our parents came in as economic migrants or came in through study like my parents did, some of them still didn't have access to being respected as fully Greek. And I suppose the danger here is that if you're not citizen, if you're not a citizen, you're not a human. Which is what happened with 
a lot of people like because Greece is an entry country to the EU, there is a lot of like newly asylum seeking people, newly uh, people who are economic migrant coming into the country because we don't have an infrastructure as a country. We don't really do anything. There's no integration. There is no welcoming program. There's nothing. So people stay in a loop of I'm going to leave this country, but never actually leave and then stay for 40 years, but not have any anything. Yeah, it's so funny. It's it's an entry point, but also a liminal space. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, actually, according to data from the Pew Research Center in 2018, there were nearly 1 million asylum applicants from Sub-Saharan Africa in Europe between 2010 and 2017. And so I think this leads us on to the research that you did for your master's in science. Um, which might be able to help us illuminate why people are seeking refuge in Europe in the first place. Talk to us about your your master's thesis. I worked specifically on the uh, on surviving trauma for women of sub-Saharan Africa across boats on the continent, but also specifically here in Europe. And it was mainly to see on the issues of domestic violence. Uh, basically intimate violence and violence women experience in their own homes and that could come from myriads of way i i left greece working as a researcher on uh trafficking human trafficking and specifically trafficking of nigerian girls into greece which greece and italy are resident countries and they kind of host a lot of nigerian girls that were trafficked into the country and that triggered my master's thesis and my master is to talk about when most people are experiencing abject violence, oppressive structural violence, like that is like because of their race, because of their origin or because of their gender, because most of the women who experienced who I spoke with, it was a qualitative research who I spoke with are stuck in Greece or stuck in any other European countries, but didn't have the nationality didn't have the citizenship. So even if something happened with their family and with their partner and they wanted to report that, they're also afraid of deportation. And I think when we talk about issue of violence against women, a lot of the conversation is had as if all these women have access to seek help or have even the safety to seek help. We don't talk about migrant women. We don't talk about women who are maybe first generation or second generation migrant who still have uh, trust issue with the system a lot of them or the people i spoke with a lot of them were talking about the fact that i don't want my partner to be deported because i reported him that already shows to me that there is a gap in the policies that we make that we don't make policies that respect human dignity we don't make policies that respects women and queer people and for example in greece if you are a queer person seeking asylum the processes are inhumane you have to prove that you are queer what does that mean Mm, we have the same here in the UK. Yeah, I was hosting a couple of refugees with the program Refugees Welcome in 2015 in Greece, and there were queer women from different uh, countries that I was hosting in my home. And it was just really depressing to see the way that they were being asked questions and the questions that they were being asked to prove that they're queer and that's why they were running from their country or from their family. And it just opened my eyes to see that being black or being someone from the global south and also being queer, there is a double marginalization and then being woman, then it's triple. And people don't think about this a lot. Like queer women and queer trans people do not go through asylum processes with dignity. I always like to let that sit, right? To let that, to give that the space that it deserves. I think because so much of I'm going off piste now, but it always strikes me working closely alongside um, Black women in my life. <clears throat> so much of my lived experience as a light-skinned, mixed-race Black person, Black man, namely, um, is centered around this kind of very ostentatious queerness, right? That, and that becomes a privilege right i'm able to bust out of the closet like a pink unicorn and it become you know i wave my flag everywhere um and so many people like for black women and black trans people in particular i think that doesn't do you get what i'm trying to say i'm yeah and i have this story it's not my story to tell but i'll share a bit of i think it's possible to share of a 
queer African person that was running away from their family because in their country, in, in their family, being queer is still criminalized. And being like then they're not running away because oh it was nice to go to europe let's just go to europe i remember when we had the skype interview to first of all register for asylum you have it's a whole process that could take years now they've fastened the process but that is like just because they keep saying no to everyone that's why they fasten the process so at the time they were staying with me and we were talking about okay we need to go to the interview and i remember the person on the interview is like well you seem educated so i don't think you have a problem and to seek asylum and i'm just like what does that mean a dark-skinned black african woman who is queer who has almost been killed by their people that because they are eloquently spoken then they don't need to seek asylum and i think as an African myself, a lot of time I forget that being Afropean also gave me a privilege to be able to wave my queerness and say, I am a queer black woman, I'm living my best life, going to Pride and all of that and going to Berlin to live my life. But when I went to Ghana, this was very funny thing, but it's I'm gonna go off a bit a bit. I went to Ghana last year and Tinder, so in Europe my Tinder is like by uh queer both men and women and tinder literally told me and sent me this message this is on a safe space with like a red text message and i was like oh whoa 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 it slapped me in the face that the places i call home like west africa specifically ghana nigeria togo still have criminalized my being well and of course these this is so interesting right because then again we're talking about how we were talking earlier about how um, blackness mutates, as it were, or transforms across borders. And here we are with your queerness as well, right? That the queerness becomes something dangerous in West Africa, but something kind of not essential in Europe. And so like what becomes dangerous is almost flipped, almost. I mean, for you, I mean, I've, of course, blackness for, um, refugees and asylum seekers still is a will be their main hurdle like for people like me with their papers and nationalities and multiple passports they're like yeah i'm fine but the moment you're like oh i'm gonna use one of those multiple passports across the border to go to west africa <laughs> west africa is like hi <laughs> but you can't be queer here it's simply interesting to observe how the identities can just like merge flip uh, put you in danger or be okay. Like when I was in Atlanta, my first experience was someone pulling out a gun in a, in a, what? It's a, it's an eating place. It's like the, my, it's like somewhere you can buy food. It's like, I don't remember the name of the place. We were there and they were asking for something. They didn't get it and they pull out a gun. And that day I was shaking. I shook throughout for like hours because in Greece, where I come from, you don't pull out a gun like that. Like <laughs> you don't. And in Greek universities, they are called sanctuaries. So we don't have police in universities. When it's the one place you can go that you're safe from any police or anybody arresting you. So when I enter Georgia State University and there's a police at the door asking me for my ID, I was like, why do universities have police? So it's a bit like there's so many things that become amplified once you change your physical space. Um... You know, this conversation forms part of a, a series I'm doing with the European Cultural Foundation about queer Black solidarity in Europe during COVID-19. And as I've been doing my, I'll be very honest, as I've been doing my research for this, and I've been looking at the ways in which um, Black and Black queer people have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, coupled with the rise of racism and all sorts of phobias and discriminations, it feels almost, I don't know, decadent to ask about solidarity. Does that make sense if I say that? It, it does. I get it. It makes sense. I feel like I said something, I think yesterday on Twitter, because somebody was talking about wanting to move off to West Africa. And I was like, a lot of us are alive this year because of solidarity. And I'm saying not just solidarity, but black womanhood, black sisterhood. For me, I think I wouldn't be here without black women. 
even the ones I don't know, like even the ones who've gone past generations, the ancestral black women, the ones to come and the ones who are here, I would not have survived this year until now without them. And I think that that's my solidarity. That's the peak of community, but also peak of when all of this was happening, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Tony McDay, I realized one thing and I've, I've always known this, but I just realized how the community that I belong in, the communities that I belong in continues to fail black women and black femmes because everybody was marching for George Floyd. People forget Breonna Taylor. She was sleeping in her bedroom. And I realized that the trans women that get killed every week, nobody has organized themselves in such a way. And when I say communities that I belong to, the queer communities, everybody was talking about being queer and wanted the, the, the fact that they were gonna lose pride this year because of COVID. And I'm like, you do understand that we are dying, like our sisters are dying, like trans black women are being killed every day and black women are being killed every day by people within our communities. It make me pull closer to black women and black femmes and non-binary people because I realized that that's where home is that's where solidarity lies because if you can't see all of me as human and you only see parts of me as human and deserving of humanity and deserving of your solidarity and support then you don't see me at all and especially within the queer community in Europe where being black in Europe is really amplified because everybody was talking even in the european parliament they were talking about george floyd and the part of me is like you do know there are black people dying in prison in greece you know there are black people dying in brussels you know there are black people dying in paris those names needs to be said i get it you want to point fingers to america and pretend to be the the poster child of humanity and dignity but you are not how many people and refugees are dying here in belgium and you can point fingers as much as you want to the united states of america and no i'm not giving america any break but let's look within our home like how many black women are dying every day in their homes every day in their own house killed by people within their own communities because you don't have policies to protect them that's right. And I think one of the frustrating bits about the global uprisings in support of Black Lives Matter was, uh, and, and against police brutality, was that very few people, um, you know, like you said, everyone's pointing to America and saying police shouldn't shoot people um, or shouldn't shoot people all the time is probably more accurate what people think. Don't let us see it on video. Yes, exactly. When they forget that actually, and they say, you know, that the police, you know, we, we don't have guns here in the UK. And so therefore, we don't have the same police violence. And it's like, well, that's not true, one. And two, the militarization of the borders is a police violence. What do you think refugees and asylum seekers face when they come into this country? It's police violence, right? It, and it, it's frustrating, right? That you're right, that there are people shouting about Black Lives Matter, but not doing anything about it in their own countries. Like the European Commission wanted to talk about structural racism. And I'm just like, do you do know that this, this is the foundation of structural racism? Like this place is the home, the birthplace, the mother of structural racism. Stop pointing to America. You created America. The monster that America is today is your child. Let's talk about the fact that all this European nation state have literally army bases on the continent of Africa. Why? There's an EU border in the continent of Africa to keep people there. And the fact that a minister in the UK could say on Twitter or on news that we need to send people back off the channel and be filming them, it tells me that that is a police state. And I think it's weird for me when I see that people don't connect that. The fact that you say you want to protect European way of life means that people will die at your border, means that Frontex exists. When Frontex exists, that is a police state. That is people dying. That is lack of human dignity that you don't give to those people. Don't don't point to America. Look at yourself in this room. Like all of you in this room, look at each other. And that is where you need to start. So you mentioned earlier that I want to ask you a very explicit question about solidarity. You mentioned earlier that Black women have gotten you through and have helped get you here. How does one, 
how does one practice or demonstrate solidarity from both within and outside our communities? What does it actually look like and what does it feel like? Listening. I think what, what we always see when movements happen, when people are organizing, when people are trying to disrupt or change the status quo, is that there's a lot of noise and less listening. Solidarity means that when you come into a community, especially when you're from outside our community, listen, don't make assumption about how you want to help because that's when we have the terrible, terrible thing called white saviorism. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be saved. You don't need to save people, but listen, listen. And also when you listen, reflect. How can you as a black man be in solidarity with a black woman if you don't understand the plight of a black woman? Or how can you as a white man be in solidarity with a black trans woman if you don't understand the plight of a black trans woman? If you don't listen to the voice of a black trans woman, if you don't allow the voice of a black trans woman to be heard and amplify her and put her up to speak for herself because she doesn't need you to speak for her because she's been doing that fight. She's been fighting before you got here. She's been fighting before you get that revelation to like, oh, I could help. But how can you help if you don't listen? And I think that even within our community as queer people, we all, like the LGBTQI, sometimes I'm just like, just remove the less letters and put the G there and be, let's be frank with each other because that's what we all see, that's what we all uphold. So what happens to the letters? What, what happens to the people? Because it's not just letter. Trans women are killed daily. Trans women exist daily and they are existing in a transphobic world. They are existing in a world that dehumanize them and so do black Black women, black women exist in a world that see them as superwoman. We are not superwoman. Who gave that narrative? Who started this talk? Because black women exist and they should be soft. But how can they be soft if you never listen? If your projection of them is to be strong and save you and be there and fight for you. And especially when we talk about solidarity, it's always about decentralize yourself. Take yourself out of the equation for one minute. Understand that you and your privilege, you exist. There's nothing you can do. Guilt does not solve anything. Take yourself out and say, I am ready as Adiola, I am ready as Josh to listen to you, my dark-skinned brown sister, to listen to you, my undocumented, not papered person who wants to survive here, to listen to you because you can't get a job. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that there are black people, African people in Italy. I didn't know that there are African people in Greece, in the UK, in Belgium that can't get jobs because they are sans papier that they say here, undocumented. But how do you know that if you don't listen? And also, how can you build solidarity if you can't build communities of understanding and intentionality? Intentionality meaning that you let go of you. It's not you, it's us. And us will never happen if you don't listen to all of us. Speak. <laughs> how, do you say, how do you stay soft then? I stay soft because my ancestors want me to be soft. It's a challenge. I'm reminded every day that, especially because all of my ancestors have done work for me to be soft. They're like, we did not go through what we went through for you to harden up your heart, for you to forget that softness is your birthright, for you to forget that being loving, being lovable, being loved is your birthright. You are here to take up space. They tell me this every day, you're here to take up space, but take it up with compassion to yourself. And also that is only where you can extend compassion to other people. You're here to passionately play, to passionately create. You're not here to die due to capitalism. We've done that work. We've done the work. You're here to rest. And in capitalism, that is my revolution. Audre Lorde also said that self-care is a political act and we're gonna like it's political for me to be soft if my heart is not soft i cannot show up for myself or my community you know i consider naps a form of reparations it is reparation and i need those numbers too i need the proper reparation but i'm gonna take naps until they come <laughs> um adiola i ask all of my guests the same question to close what do you hope for I hope for a future where 
there's liberation. I hope for the sun on my face every day. I hope for the shores of the West African Atlantic Ocean crushing at my feet, telling me that it's okay to be home, telling me to bring my community home and my community to rest, to heal, but also to thrive because we are done surviving. We are called to thrive. We are called to heal and love on each other and show that there is a balance and integration of our divine feminine and divine masculine and we can all coexist regardless of what our ancestries are regardless of what we identify at and what nationalities we have we can all coexist when we heal together and i think that's a strong thing that we all need to remember that if europe and afro if europe wants to live up to human dignity and allow Afropian to exist freely, then we all need to heal together. And that's ancestral work that needs to happen within all of us. Adiola Adarami is a multilingual Afro-Greek and multi-format artist, scholar, activist, and healer. She received her Master's of Science in Public Health at Birmingham City University, and her master's thesis focuses on the socioeconomic impact of violence against women of sub-Saharan Africa. You'll find links to her work in the show notes. Thank you to our newest funding partner, MyGWork, the LGBT business community. MyGWork is a global recruitment and networking hub for LGBT professionals, graduates, allies, and organizations to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. And as the landscape of work changes beneath our feet, MyGWork's focus on ensuring LGBT voices and experiences are heard is as important as ever. Find out more at MyGWork.com. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, and Schools Out. And thank you to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, ratings, shares, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com